reader's uh, little blurb in the back of his book. Adrian was a newspaper, football and feature writer for the Times. He then worked for the BBC as a radio reporter before spending two years as a TV sports presenter. He's now based up in Christchurch in central London, where he's uh, on the leadership team there. He's the author of two books, uh, The Shock of Your Life and Aftershock, and you're able to buy these uh, uh, at the desk on the way out. Adrian gets nothing from these books. The royalties go to charity, okay? But they are excellent books. The young people will have heard Adrian many times at New Day, where he's a regular speaker and has seen many, many people respond to the gospel. He is a gifted evangelist, and it's a privilege to have him here with us this morning. He's here this morning. He's going to be sharing on how to communicate the gospel in your world. And the aim is that in a few weeks' time, in June, he's going to come back and he's going to be preaching. But this morning is about, he's teaching us about how we can be effective for Jesus. He travels widely across the UK, and it's a great pleasure to have him with us. So let's give him a really warm hand. Thanks very much. Oh, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much. You're very kind. Uh, let me just introduce myself. For those of you, uh, perhaps many of you who don't know me, uh, I thought I'd introduce myself by saying that uh, maybe like you, uh, when I was 16 years old, I had lots of little ambitions. But really and truly, they all fed into one mega ambition. More than anything else, when I was 16, I wanted to be cool. I wanted people to look at me and think, oh, he's cool. That was my whole goal in life. And by the summer of 1984, I believed that I'd finally become cool for one very good reason. I had some completely white leather shoes that were identical to those worn by that sensational pop duo, Wham! Now, does anybody here remember Wham? Just raise a hand. Oh my goodness, it's like a Wham! church. That was remarkable. Every hand in these two blocks. Um, and then I also bought some light blue trousers that were identical, I'll have you know, to those trousers worn by Andrew Ridgely and George Michael in the video to the smash hit song, Club Tropicana. At this point in my life, folks, I discovered another band called The Smiths. And The Smiths had a lead singer called Morrissey. Now, does anybody here remember Morrissey? Okay, the same people. Um, <laughs> and uh, Morrissey had a, a hairstyle uh, called a flat top. Now, I know this is going to be difficult for you to imagine, looking at me now, but back in the 80s, I had hair. In fact, I had so much hair in the 80s, I could even choose a style. I had options, those were the days. And I chose to gel my hair up into a flat top in honour of my hero, Morrissey. And I had on this Smith's t-shirt, I had on this jacket he used to wear, and for some reason, I still don't know to this day, you had to wear this kind of World War I-style trench coat, like even in the summer you had to wear this thing. But I didn't have the full outfit, I still had on my light blue trousers and my completely white leather shoes. So if you had seen me in the summer of 1984, I was basically... Smiths from the waist up and wham from the waist down. And then I was, I was, as I was standing in this kind of cultural transition, um, I was hanging out in Wimbledon Town Centre uh, with about 20 or so of my mates. And we used to hang out on a Friday night, uh, not, not right outside McDonald's, so that it looks sad, but slightly to one side. And as we were hanging out outside McDonald's, this new girl who was in our clique, she wasn't yet a core clique member, she was a provisional member type girl. She could stand near us on a Friday night. And so she was called Caroline Payne. Caroline Payne says to all of us one Friday night, she says, oh, she says, how would you all like to come with me to my church on Sunday evening? And there was a pause, a silence, a bit like there was then actually. And um, the reason for the silence was we were all thinking, Church? What kind of church would you possibly want to go to? And so out of sheer curiosity, we all said yes. We'd never met anyone our age who went to church. I didn't go to church. 
none of my friends went to church. We hadn't met anybody our age who did. But Caroline Payne went to church. So we all went to her church that Sunday, which was Wimbledon Baptist Church. And I was introduced uh, that night to evangelical Christianity, something that I didn't know existed in Britain. I didn't know that this thing existed, but there it was, uh, you know, in the town centre. And uh, I went back to this church and... Uh, to make a long story short, a number of months later, on the 14th of April, 1985, I gave my life to Christ and I threw myself into telling other people about this amazing discovery that I'd made down the town centre. And uh, so I, I was in the lowest sixth form at school, so I went back to school, obviously, the following day and uh, I didn't really know what you're supposed to do, but I would pray that I'd be able to talk to some of my friends at school, so I'd pray, Dear God, and I'd sort of kneel before my bed in the morning before school, may... In the lunch queue today, may I be able to speak to Nick Pimlot about you? And then I would go to the lunch queue and then I would, there Nick Pimlot would appear as if by magic. And I think, oh, wow, answered prayer, this is amazing. And so I pray, I don't know, for Anthony Van Der Steen, and then I pray for Andy De Groot. These are all old school friends of mine. And every time I prayed one of these prayers for like a divine appointment to speak to that person about Christ, every time I prayed a prayer like that for two years, it worked. And I thought, Wow. So after two years, my faith was absolutely sky high and a number of people at the school became Christians and uh, the teachers became interested in this kind of phenomenon in the sixth form and they, they used to give us, first of all, they gave us house assemblies where we could just preach to the house. Then they would give us whole school assemblies. It wasn't a Christian school, but they just thought, oh, you know, let these guys do their thing. So they kind of encouraged us and then they kind of got a bit out of hand. Like, I remember in one double period of A-level history, the head of the history department started the, we were doing Tudors and Stuarts, and he started the lesson by saying, Adrian, how would you like to speak to us today about speaking in tongues? <laughs> We're supposed to be doing Tudors and Stuarts. But you know, the, the high point of my school career was just before we got our A-level results. I was in the sixth form common room. And my friend, James Lewison, accused Julian McCorkadale of only becoming a Christian because it was trendy. And I thought, yes! We have completely reversed the culture. You know, you think, oh, everybody's doing it. You're just following the trend. You're just becoming a Christian because that's the cool thing to do. You're so shallow. You know, that was exactly the opposite of what I'd grown up with when it was the last thing that anybody would want to do. But there we are. And as I think back on that story, or maybe, you know, over the last 20 years, I've seen many people come to faith in Christ. And you might hear that story and you might think, oh, yeah, that's a good story. But you know what I do when I think back on my life? I think about one person, Caroline Payne. Because humanly speaking, the reason why I'm in Winchester this morning, the reason why I'm standing here on this stage, humanly speaking, is because one 15-year-old girl, one Friday night, outside McDonald's, in Wimbledon Town Centre, turned to 20 of her mates and said out loud, how would you all like to come with me to my church on Sunday evening? That's why I'm here. That's why I'm in Christ today. And I look back on that episode and I think all Caroline Payne really did was she communicated the gospel in her world. And that is what Steve's asked me to talk to you about this morning. I'd like to talk about how you and I can communicate the gospel day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year in our world. So let's start by going on another journey. Come with me, if you will, to uh, North Carolina, to the sweltering summer of 1934. And there, in Charlotte, North Carolina, an evangelist called Dr. Mordecai Ham is preaching every night in a tin hut with sawdust as a carpet. And for the last month, a group of local teenagers have been inviting a 16-year-old who loves baseball to come to these meetings. But for the last month, the 16-year-old has been saying no, telling all of these people he wants nothing to do with such nonsense. Folks, it was at this moment that Albert McMakin made his mark upon world history. You see, Albert had built up a friendship with the 16-year-old who loved baseball at Albert's dad's farm, where Albert's dad grew prize-winning tomatoes. And so Albert asked the teenager, 
And would you like me to try and do the uh, Carolina accent? Yeah? Okay, I'll try and do the accent. Albert asked the teenager, you know, on the farm, why don't you come out and hear our fattened preacher? And he replied, I won't carry on. He replied, but then the teenager threw in, then the teenager replies, is he a fighter? I like a fighter. Then Albert threw in the added incentive that if the teenager agreed to come, Albert would allow the teenager to drive the McMakin family vegetable truck to the meeting. The offer of the truck swung it. The teenager said yes. So he drove the McMakin family, but remember he's only 16, so this is quite exciting. He drives the vegetable truck to the meeting. He sits at the back and he's captivated by the preacher's message. He attends the meetings for a whole month and then he finally responded to the appeal for salvation. He was the last person. 400 people came forward that night. He was the very last person to come forward. He stood at the back and there was a tailor called J.D. Previtt who prayed with him to receive Christ. Folks, that teenager is still alive. He's now 91 years old. And over the last 70 years, he's probably led more people to Christ than anyone who has ever lived. And he's probably talked about Jesus to more people face to face than anyone who's ever talked to anyone about anything. And that man's name is Dr. Billy Graham. Here's my point. Folks, few people... Very few people on earth will ever hear of Albert McMakin. But in heaven, Albert is going to look out at millions of people who found Christ through Billy Graham. And Albert McMakin is going to reflect forever on the results of one moment of boldness when he said to a 16-year-old farm boy who loves baseball, why don't you come out and hear our fighting preacher? Folks, not every Christian is going to be a Billy Graham. But every single person who can hear my voice right now can be an Albert McMakin. And when I hear stories like that, I think to myself, you know what, there is probably nothing else that is as exhilarating that we can live for. And yet all Albert McMakin did was Albert communicated the gospel in his world, which was the the tomato-growing farm world of North Carolina in the 1930s. That's all he did. But that enabled Billy Graham to communicate the gospel to the whole world. So, You and I reaching our world, you and I helping people to escape from hell and get to heaven, that sounds like a pretty exhilarating idea. And, when we think about it a bit more, I'm sure that it's something that in a church like this we can all agree that Christians are called in the Bible to do. So, if I am excited about telling others and I think that I should, here's my question. Why am I so reluctant to communicate the gospel in my world? Why are so many of us Christians reluctant to communicate the gospel in our world? And it seems to me that the reason for that is because when it comes to evangelism, so many of us live in what I call the valley of disappointment. Now let me see if I can explain this with the help of a visual aid uh, here for a second. The experience of many Christians looks like this. There you are at the start of your Christian life, here on your left-hand side, the bottom of the screen, and I don't know when you, uh, your faith came alive. Maybe you were brought up in a Christian home, I'm obviously making this bit up, and when you were 17, your faith came alive at some Bible week or camp or Scripture Union mission or beach mission or, I don't know, your mum told you something, and for whatever reason, your faith, bing, you went to a concert or something like that, 
you, you, your faith came alive, you came to know Christ, you went back to school that September, you sat next to the kid you sat next to for the like, previous seven years, but you changed. And they could see that you changed because you were excited. The God thing had become real. The Jesus thing was suddenly real. It was, you, you believed it all. It was real. And you started to climb what I call the, um, mount, the, let's call it the hill of expectation. In other words, you're thinking, maybe my friend will become a Christian. What happened to that friend? Are they in church today? Are they here this morning? No, if you look, think about what actually happened was, you know, maybe you invited them to some event and it all kind of blew over and they lost interest or they moved away or then you went into a little kind of trough of disappointment, which is understandable. But the great thing about you is that you redoubled your efforts. You see, you didn't quit. On the contrary, let's throw your story on now. Maybe you're in your late teens or early 20s. Maybe you've started university somewhere. Or maybe you've moved to Winchester and you've started your first job here in the city of Winchester. And this time you're there at your desk, you're typing away at your terminal, and there's this new girl or there's a new guy who's new in the company or maybe someone who's on on your corridor. And this person is genuinely interested in your Christian faith. They actually ask you questions. They raise the subject with you. This is something that's only ever happened to other Christians before in your experience, but it's how it's happened to you. And you think, wow, this is, what, this is what's supposed to happen. And so you start to climb what I call the mountain of expectation. Because you're thinking, wow, you know, I've been a Christian now for two years or 14 years or 13 years or 20 years I've been a Christian now and I've never actually led one of my friends to Christ, but now it seems like I'm finally going to break my duck. Your friend is on Alpha. Now, here's my question. What actually happened at the top of the mountain of expectation? Wow. I don't know, maybe it was the start of the Alpha Course or week five and your friend kind of dropped out or they prayed a prayer and it all fizzled out into nothing. And what actually happened to us is that we kind of slid down into what I call the valley of disappointment. And the significant thing about the valley of disappointment is that so many of us Christians live there in the valley of disappointment. And the average church member's disappointment is a problem because it makes us more reluctant the next time. And what happens in the valley of disappointment is crucial because this is what happens to us. In the valley of disappointment, we Christians decide what our gifting is. Because you see, we look back on our Christian life and we review the results of our various efforts, the various things we've done. And... We haven't got much to show for our evangelism. We think, hmm, I tried evangelism, but I didn't see the results that I was looking for. But there are all these other things in the life of the church. When I do see some definable results, maybe that is where my gifting is. Because there are so many equally biblical, equally important things that we do in the life of the church. So, for example, let's imagine I was part of your church, Winchester Family Church, and let's imagine that it was my job to put the chairs out in these amazingly kind of symmetrical rows. It's like, it's like military precision. It's absolutely fantastic. The angles are perfect. And let's imagine it was my job to do that. Okay. And I, so I put the chairs out every week. And, and what do I see? Maybe once a year, one of the elders says, thanks. So now what have I got to show for my efforts? Every Sunday, the people are not sitting on the floor because of me. Plus, secondly, I'm now getting annual feedback from the elders. So I think to myself, you know, I tried evangelism for 20 years. I didn't really see the results I was looking for. Nobody ever became a Christian. But my chair ministry. Maybe, you know, I can actually see I'm making a difference there. Maybe that's where my gifting is. Now, of course, I'm just, you know, exaggerating for the sake of effect. But you, can you see my point? In the life of the church, we can see at least something for our efforts. That lady's been helped. She's my friend now. She liked the Bible study. She came over my... So there's something we can see for our efforts within the life of the church. 
But the evangelism thing, well, you know, I mean, it's all come to nothing. I haven't got anything to show for that. So obviously, I mean, there are people who are gifted in the evangelism, but I was obviously not one of them. Can you see how if every Christian in Britain thinks that, what do you get? An inward-looking church. Great meetings, great internal ministries. Meanwhile, the rest of Britain is somewhat divorced and separated from the life of the church. Folks, we've been in the valley of disappointment. And God wants to get us out. What was it that we so wanted to happen at the very top of the mountain of disappointment, or the mountain of expectation? The thing we wanted to happen at the very top of that mountain was we wanted our friend to become a Christian. All I want to do is simply say this to you, that actually in the Bible, evangelism is not all about seeing people become Christians. Now before you result to that, re- respond to that um, somewhat controversial statement, have a look at the scale. I want to suggest to you that everybody in Winchester, that everybody in Britain is somewhere on this scale. And uh, incidentally, if you're here this morning and you've yet to reach point 10 on the scale where you've given your life to Christ, I can tell you there is something wonderful at the top of the scale. Coming to know Jesus is the best thing that has ever happened to me and I want to commend him to you. It's an exciting way to live. But anyway, everybody's somewhere on this scale. Everyone in Winchester was somewhere between at the bottom of the scale, having no awareness of God and being at the very top of the scale where you've already decided to give your life to Christ. I want to suggest that all successful evangelism is, is meeting people at whatever point they are on the scale and through that encounter, their picture of church is slightly improved and they see the gospel is increasingly relevant to them. So your next door neighbour who moved away several years ago, they were at point one when you met them. When they moved somewhere else, that you left them at point two. I'm saying that's successful evangelism. Someone at work sat next to you for three years. When you met them, they were at point five. But when they moved off to Bradford, they were at point eight. I'm saying that is successful evangelism. We need to see that evangelism is a process. Now, how do we know that that, that's a true statement? We know evangelism is a process because the Bible tells us so. In fact, Jesus taught us so. On many occasions, let's just choose one. Perhaps the most famous occasion, an amazing story in John chapter 4. Perhaps you know this story. Jesus is on a journey from the south of the country to the north of the country and he has to go through this place that we would call the West Bank but he called Samaria and it's a hot day and he goes to this place called Sychar and he goes to this well and it just so happens there is a woman at the well and he makes a fairly... he asks her for a glass of water because he's thirsty. Folks, every time I read John chapter 4 I am amazed by the speed of Jesus' progress. The master evangelist. See, conversation starts with, can I have a glass of water, please? Right? Within the space of 30 verses, the whole town is coming out to hear the gospel. And I look at it, I think, wow, how do you do that? So I go back to my Bible, I've got my orange highlighter, I've got yellow, I've got green. What is the key? And I'm looking through the whole, I mean, how do you do that? And of course, when I go through my highlighter pens, what do I find? During the course of the conversation, he's having a chat with this woman, right? During the course of the conversation, he's never met the woman before, he says this. Actually, you're right, because the man you're now living with is not your husband. In fact, you've had five husbands. And the man who you're now living with is not your husband. How does he know that? How can you know that when you meet a complete stranger? How can you say, I think, that must be the answer. And so when I'm reading John chapter 4, as they're kind of debriefing, at the end of the episode, and they're walking along the road, this is after the whole town has come out to hear the gospel, and Jesus is kind of debriefing with the disciples about you know, how it went at Sychar. I always expect the conversation should go something like this. So Jesus is walking along, and if you've ever seen the film, the Franco Zeffirelli film, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, what happens is that Jesus walks along in the lead, and that the disciples are kind of flayed out like red arrows behind him like this. So he walks along, and they're like in formation, kind of like this behind him. And I always walk, imagine that Jesus is walking along and uh, he sort of turns around to the guys and he, this is what I think should happen in John 4. He turns around and says, now guys, why do you think it was that we had such a success at Sychar? Why do you think it was that we hit such a home run at Sychar today? And maybe Peter says, um, uh, well, um, Rabbi, it's because you had one of your words of knowledge. And Jesus says, oh, well, yes, uh, Peter, I think you find it was rather a good one. That's what I think they should say. 
But when I read John 4, actually, when Jesus reflects on this amazing success at Sychar, he says something completely different. He says this, Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you've reaped the benefits of their labour. Now why would he say that? I think he says that because in this conversation, this woman has said something to Jesus that in all my 20 odd years of trying to share Christ with people who don't yet know them, know him, no one, no non-Christian has ever said anything approaching what this woman says to Jesus when she says to Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now, here is how I personally see John chapter 4 in terms of football. In John 4, the ball is out on the wing with the winger. Jesus is like a centre forward. And the goalkeeper, the opposition goalkeeper, has inexplicably left his goal and wandered upfield, presenting Jesus with potentially an open goal. The ball then comes over from the winger and Jesus is presented with the ball near the penalty spot in front of an open goal. Okay, that's how I see John 4. Now, let's just have a look at what the situation is. Jesus arrives at the well. There happens to be a woman, a living human being at the well. The woman sees Jesus. They have a conversation. The woman says to Jesus, this is the woman speaking to Jesus, she says, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus hears this. He's thinking, she's waiting for the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. And so he says, I who speak to you am he. He just taps the ball over the goal line, into the empty net, crowd erupts. Final score, devil nil, Jesus won. It's an away win in Sikar. <laughs> Folks, my point is this, this woman was not a point one on the scale. She was not a point two on the scale. She was way up there in nosebleed territory. She already believes the Bible is true. She can have quite a sophisticated conversation about worship. Oh, should we be worshipping here? Should we be worshipping there? You know, she believes the Bible already. She's already way up there. And so what Jesus is reflecting on as he walks along the road with the guys in the Red Arrows formation is he's saying, look, isn't it amazing? You can even just talk to a woman. Even a woman who is living an immoral life, who's been shunned by her friends and relatives, even a woman like that, even she believes the Bible. Even she you know, the, the prophets have sown the word of God into Samaria over centuries to create this kind of opportunity. In fact, this is, what, this is what Bruce Milne, in his commentary on John's Gospel, says. Bruce Milne says this, As Jesus has just demonstrated in his winning of the Samaritan woman, the time for reaping is at hand. All the generations of preparation within the life of Israel, the witness of the seers, the prophets, the priests, and the leaders, culminating, Bruce Milne says, in the ministry of John the Baptist have brought the harvest to fruition. Bruce Milne says, when Jesus says one sows and another reaps, verse 37, he's probably thinking specifically of John the Baptist, who had ministered recently in the area. Chapter 3, verse 23. So all these guys over centuries have sown the word of God so that even your average woman at your average well, she believes the Bible's true. John the Baptist has been through touring the area recently, teeing the whole thing up. So Jesus concludes to the guys, you know that thing that we, we, we always say to each other in our agricultural society, the kind of saying that we all say to each other, one sows and another reaps? It's applicable spiritually. One person sows the word of God, in this case John the Baptist, somebody else reaps, in this case us. Folks, all the analogies that Jesus used for evangelism, which incidentally were fishing, farming, searching for lost items, and sowing, they all took time. It is a process. And once, and if 
We accept this idea. We can lift off us all the self-imposed pressure that we have been living under. Because if evangelism really is a process, if that's not just spin or hype or what I'm saying in one particular sermon, if that's what Jesus says, then every single person in this building can get involved. Because even if I'm in the valley of disappointment, I can say, oh, you're just asking me to be part of a process. Oh, I can do that. You're not asking me to stand on the stage and preach. No, no. You just ask me to be part of a process. Yeah, I can do that. What helps someone from point one to point two? I can do that. We can all get involved. This is revolutionary. Jesus' take on evangelism is so liberating. Because you see, once we accept as a process, it enables us to lift off us all the self-imposed pressure that we have put upon ourselves. Every single believer can play a, play a part and we can start to feel good about our contribution. So if you take someone from point one to point two, you are a success in evangelism. You take someone from point five to point eight, you are a success in evangelism. Let's imagine that there's 300 people now who can hear my voice in this building. And let's imagine that each of you, on average, has helped 10 people in Winchester come closer to faith in Christ. If you take 300 times 10, that means there are 3,000 people living in Winchester today who are closer to faith in Jesus than when you first met them. I suggest that you could be just a little bit encouraged about that. That's good. You know, even though this is Hampshire, we can be encouraged. It's okay, there's 3,000 people who are closer to faith in Christ than when I first met them or when my friends first met them. This is good news. Folks, you can not only communicate the gospel in your world, but you can actually feel like you're a success while you're doing it. So let's just think about some of the practicalities of this as we uh, draw to a close here. Uh, if you're going to communicate the gospel in your world, let's think about the different elements that make up your world. And this will be a bit of fun as well. Firstly, leisure time. Hands up. How many of you enjoy doing what you enjoy doing? Should be everyone if you're alive. If you didn't put your hand up, then you are a very unusual individual. Okay, how many of you find you have energy for what you enjoy doing? Of course, all of us do. Here's what I mean. Let's imagine that you're at home and you've just come in from work and you're at your most exhausted and you slump down on the sofa and you've just put the kids to bed. I mean, you know they're not really in bed. They're just upstairs. They're officially in bed, but you, know, you can hear them bouncing around and you block it out and you try and kid yourself that they're in bed and you know they're not, but you think, well, you know, they'll, they'll live. It'll be okay. Tomorrow's another day. And so you're lying there on the sofa and you can't even see what's on the screen. It's too far away. I mean, you've got the channel hopper and you're just sort of pressing the button. The little slits in your eyes. You don't care what's on. You know, you're just absolutely exhausted. I put it to you at that moment, if the phone rings and you can reach the phone without moving, so you find the phone down the back of the sofa. You press the button. And there's someone on the end of the phone. And they are saying, would you like to come out and do... And they mention some particular interest or some particular activity. Some particular interest of yours. I put it to you this morning that when they say that particular thing, you suddenly feel energy for that one particular thing. Now here's my question. What is your one particular thing? I don't know, for our friend Steve here, it could be line dancing. <laughs> but you might not want to go line dancing with Steve. You might think it's embarrassing. So you might think, no, I don't want to go line dancing with Steve. I want to, but what's your thing? What is your one particular thing? It might be that you uh, want to do something with motorbikes or for somebody else it will be upholstery for somebody else it will be learning to speak fluent French for somebody else it will be a book club for somebody else it will be badminton or... listen, the person who is sitting next to you right now their thing would not even vaguely interest you but your thing oh, your thing's different Oh, so there are people aren't there we know this don't we there are people out there who like military history and I've got all my soldiers and little rows. And you've got all your soldiers and little rows. And I've got my marble and you've got your marble. And then I roll my marble, I knock over some of your little men. And then you roll your marble, you knock over some of my little men. And some people look at that and they say, that's sad. 
And they say, we want to reenact it in real life. So they get into their Volvos on Saturdays with their chain mail and their armour and they drive down to Wiltshire. And then they get out into a field, you know, somewhere near Stonehenge maybe. And you get out with your mate in the field and you've got your armour, you put your visor on, you've got your sword and it's just you and your mate and you say, I am Arthur! And you kind of slash around and your mate slashes back and then eventually after like ten minutes your mate falls over and says, Whoa, whoa! Thrice woe, thou hast slain me, thrice woe. And then you get up off the, off the floor and say, that was great, let's do it again next Saturday. And they drive back. That was great. That's their thing. I was walking along the road not so long ago with a colleague of mine and uh, we were just going to the shop to get a sandwich. And as we're walking along the road, um, he's on his mobile phone and he finishes the call and this is how he responds. As he finishes the call, he goes like this. He goes, yes! And you know, you got, I can't not comment. So I said, well, what's up? And I'm thinking, you know, something amazing's happened. You know, like maybe his mum has become a Christian or something amazing's happened. And he says, yes! He said, so-and-so has become an Apple Mac user. Yes! Another one. That's his thing. But you know what, there's one thing that you are passionate about. And here is the good news, there are other people in Winchester who don't know Jesus yet. And they're passionate about the same thing that you're passionate about. Best news is, they'd actually like to meet you. Because if they met you, you could talk about whatever the book of the book club is. Or you could talk about whatever it is that interests you, the fishing, the badminton, whatever, the upholstery, whatever it is. You can go rollerblading or whatever it is you want to do. So you can communicate the gospel in your world and you can have the time of your life while you're doing it. You can actually do something you enjoy doing. This means, incidentally, for Christian leaders that getting people to do evangelism is no longer kind of whipping them, saying, come on, you know you've got to do this. Come on, get out there. I got some more of that. I got some more of that. Go on, get out there. You know you've got to do it. You know you have. You don't have to do that anymore. You can simply say this. And I've done this hundreds of times. I say to people in the church, I say to people in, in Christ Church, I say, um, so what do, you enjoy, what do you enjoy doing? And they say, well, is it a trick question? I say, no, no, no. Is it, what do you enjoy doing? And they say, well, um, basketball. I say, great news. There are people who don't know Jesus who like playing basketball. And you could go and play basketball and you could first of all enjoy yourself and you could make friends with those who don't know Christ yet and they'd like to meet you. This is a win-win. Everybody wins. It's fantastic. Folks, we can release people. Now, you may be the busiest that you've ever been in your entire life. I am currently living in central London. I'm an elder in a busy church. I have four kids, aged 10, 8, 2 and 1. I also have a wife. And, <laughs> and um, I'm the busiest that I've ever been in my entire life right now. But even I can find even the tiniest slice of leisure time. Maybe it's just one evening a month. So, for example, I've got a, a friend called Onde Agogabi. He's a, a Nigerian civil engineer. And if Onde were here on the stage and we were doing a little testimony, Onde, how did you become a Christian? Onde would say, Adrian, it all started with badminton. Because when he was 25 years old, he went down to the leisure centre with his partner and he played badminton against this other couple. And at the end of the badminton game, he, he noticed something unusual. And uh, he says to this couple um, who he's played badminton against, who he didn't know, he says, look, can I just ask you something before you go, um, go, go back to the change room? Can I just ask you, um, I just noticed that in the game we just had, um, me and my girlfriend noticed that um, you didn't swear. And on this thing to himself, you know, there's quite a lot of scope for swearing in badminton. This is, this is unusual. And so he says, you know, I noticed you didn't swear. And this couple say, well... Uh, yeah, I suppose, I suppose it's probably true. I mean, as it happens, we're Christians. And yeah, you got me. I, you know, we don't swear. You got me. And um, so then this Christian couple invite Onde to the New Frontiers regional celebration. This is not even an evangelistic event. So this is in, in Sussex. So the regional celebration starts. There's lots of worship and loads of people. During the worship, Onde is, quote, slain in the spirit, 
which means he falls over on the floor in the worship under the power of God and uh, he's converted on the carpet during the worship at the start of the meeting. So he would be an example of someone who went up the scale very quickly. Because all he knows is that Christians don't swear and that they play badminton, which is not very much to go on. Next heading, those we work with. I continually meet Christians who feel condemned that they don't witness on the job more than they do. Now, as it happens, I used to work in a 24-hour newsroom. And in that very kind of intense environment, if I had, whilst we were on air, if I had gone around the newsroom merrily talking to my colleagues in the newsroom about Christ, I would not have been doing my job very well. Nor even through the medium of my work, which in my case was television, would it actually have been appropriate to communicate the gospel. But I easily could have done. Very easily I could have done. For example, one of the things I used to do was I used to read the classified football results. I could easily have said something like this. Barclays Premiership. Arsenal 1, Manchester United 0. Chelsea 2, West Ham United 0. Everton 1, but God so loved the world that he gave his only son. (laughs) That if any of you listening to this broadcast should believe in him, you will not perish, but you can have eternal life. I could easily have said that. (laughs) And if I had said that, I could have gone to the church prayer meeting the following night and I could have said I was pretty radical at work yesterday. And they would have said, oh, really? You know, um, what, what do you mean you were radical at work? I could, have, I could have said, guess which verse I managed to slip into the classified football results. And they said, oh, I don't know which verse was it. And I could say, John 3.16. And they would have said, oh, Adrian, you're so radical. But if I'd done that, I would have been sacked. No more worky. It would have been all over because I wasn't being employed to do that. Now, the reality is I viewed my working life as an opportunity to come over to my boss as one thing, a team player. That was my ambition in work. I wanted my boss and everyone in the department to think of me as a team player. I wanted them to think, oh yeah, Adrian Holloway, he pulls for the team. You can rely on him. His stuff always gets on air at the right time. You can rely on him. He always makes the bulletin. That was my ambition. I wanted everybody in the office to feel good about my contribution. My goal, basically, folks, was to build up a positive reputation in the office by the way that I did my job so that I'm starting from a position of strength. Because I know that actually around now, April, May, is a good time. When it starts to get a little bit sunnier and the evenings start to get a little bit lighter, what's going to happen is every single Friday we're going to go across the road after work and we're going to loosen our ties and we're going to stand around maybe outside a public house or something similar, and there's going to be a golden opportunity. One of my mates is going to say to me, so what are you doing this weekend? And I know at that point that when I mention the church thing, I'm starting from a position of strength. And hopefully they will have seen something that makes them a little bit curious. And they want to ask why. They're favourably disposed towards me. Somebody's leaving due. When people leave, social occasion. People get married, social occasion. Any work-related social occasion is an opportunity to start from a position of strength. And often they're curious. Third and final thing is the other people who we come into contact with. For example, neighbours. If you ever move house, good news, in our culture, even here in the southeast of England, it is still considered socially acceptable if you ever move house to knock on a few neighbours' doors either side and say, hello, I'm your new neighbour. They won't think you're weird. They'll just think you're a friendly person. It's okay. And so you can have, I don't know, a housewarming barbecue. That's what we've done in the past. When you invite people, they will not say, and who are you to impose your barbecue upon me? What gives you the right to cross the road and tell me that you exist? What gives you the right to give me free food in your back garden? How dare you? No, they don't say that. We've done this whenever we've moved, and we did this in Birmingham. How do I know people weren't offended? In Birmingham, when we moved to Birmingham, we had a hundred people in our back garden for the barbecue. And I want to say this, if I may. Folks, don't feel obliged to preach at the barbecue. It is tempting, I know. 
Because you want to, don't you? You want to get up on a chair. You want to gather the crowd and say, no, I know we've all had a good time today, but I want you now to gather around, gather around, gather around. And you do your little visual aid, maybe with a bun and a roll and a ketchup, pouring out the ketchup. You want to do that kind of thing. And then you want to kind of build to a climax where you say, and if you believe what I'm saying, come to the grill. Come to the grill. And you want to gather them forward. And you've got that. Every night you go to bed with this vision of all your neighbours kneeling on your patio, holding their buns in repentance. I want to say that you, you, you can preach, but you, you don't have to. It's like an option. You don't have to do the evangelistic preach at the barbecue. You know, I was happy just to build bridges of relationship. You might say to me, okay, what happened to the hundred people in Birmingham? Here's the deal. Four of them came on the Alpha course. Of the four, one became a Christian. That's what happened. Moved to London. Uh, three years later, did the same thing. Housewarming barbecue. This bloke, um, two, no, three doors down on the right-hand side, comes me up, up to in the street and he says, Adrian, can I tell you why I'm coming to your barbecue? I said, yeah. He said, because I have lived in this road for 25 years. No one has ever done what you're doing. And I thought, well, you know, all it is for me, all it is, is just going down to Tesco Express, buying a few buns, buying some mustard. You know, it's not rocket science. And I think about that verse in Acts 17. Paul is preaching an evangelistic sermon. He says this, God has determined the exact times and places where people should live. God, in other words, Paul is saying, has set the whole thing up so that these people should connect with God through me. What that verse means is that my next door neighbour is supposed to be living next door to me. Let me tell you a quick story about my next door neighbour. And I'll change her name uh, for the sake of the recording because she's a barrister in the High Court in central London and I'll call her Fiona. Now, one morning Fiona does something that all of us have done many times, which is when you get ready for your working day and you're just about ready to go and get in the car with your stuff, or actually where we live we get on the bus, but never mind. And he, she realises I've left something at home. So she leaves, she's got these two huge drag bags, all the legal papers for a defence case, live case at the Old Bailey, massive legal drag bags right up here. She leaves them on the doorstep, she goes back into the house to get her key, she comes back. When she comes back to the doorstep, the bags have gone. <gasps> so she's in a complete panic. Fiona uh, doesn't know what to do. The bags have gone. Where have they gone? She can't see them anywhere. So she goes next door. This is our house number 23. Knocks on the door. I wasn't home for this. Julia, my wife, was home. And uh, Julia comes down and says, Fiona says, Oh, Julia, Julia, I've lost my bags. I've lost my bags. Someone's stolen my bags. Have you seen my bags? And, Fiona, and Julia says, Well, you know, I, I'm sorry. I was upstairs in the bedroom. I haven't seen your bags. And so um, Fiona's like looking for a mobile phone and a, a handbag and she's, you know, what's she going to do? And so Julia walks out into the street and she just prays in her mind. And Julia says, um, Lord, you know, where are Fiona's bags? And she feels God say, look at the top of the street. So she looks up the top of the street. It's a long terrace street, parked cars, typical terrace street. Um, right at the very top of the street, there's, uh, Julia can see right at the top of the street. She feels God say they're in the back of that van. And there is a van right at the very top of the street. So Julia, she just starts walking up the road. Now, I have to say, if it had been me, I would have maybe done a couple of steps and I thought, nah, they're not going to be in the back of the van. But Julia's a much better Christian than me, so she walks all the way to the top of the street. She walks all the way to the top of the street, gets to the van, and um, there's a bloke sitting in the cabin of this white van, so she knocks on the window, like this. bloke in the van thinks, who's this funny woman, winds down his window, Julia's like this. Have you got two bags in the back of your van that don't belong to you? <laughs> and the bloke goes, Oh no, he says. I knew we shouldn't have nicked them. Julia says, Well, they don't belong to you, do they? They belong to my friend. I think you should take them back. He goes, Oh no, I knew we shouldn't have nicked them. So he gets out the, back of, gets out the van. He walks round to the back of the van. He undoes the double doors. There are the bags. Gets them out, puts them down, puts the drag hands. At this point, his mate, who's the one who actually nicked them, he's been around the shop. He comes back and he sees that they've been discovered. Oh no, we've been discovered. And so he says um, out loud again, he says, oh no, he says, I knew we shouldn't have nicked them. They look so important. They look so important. We thought we'd steal them and find out what was in them later. Oh no. Uh, you know, I hate it when this happens. He says, so uh, so they, they then start pulling the bags back down. So Julia's walking back down the street. There's two huge men pulling the bags. Fiona's on her, on her mobile phone. She can hardly believe it. As the guys come back outside our house, at that moment the police arrive and they arrest these two blokes and take them off. 
And so Julia and Fiona are looking each other in the eye and Fiona is reunited with her precious bags. And as you can imagine, there is just one question that Fiona really wants to ask. Fiona says, look, the one thing I don't get, Julia, is how did you know? How did you know that the bags were in the back of that van all the way at the top of the street? And Julia replied, well, I think God told me. Well, Fiona is now much higher up the scale than she was. You won't be surprised to hear. One last thing as I close, just to simply say this, that the other day, um, in every stage of life that you reach gives you special opportunities. Right now, we're at a stage of life where we're married with kids and the school gate is a big part of our life. And the other day, I'm driving along in the car with Julia and my wife. The kids weren't, in, weren't with us on this occasion. And Julia says, my wife says to me, she says, um, oh, a funny thing happened at the school gate today. I said, what was that? She said, oh, this mum, she mentions this mum that we both know. This mum, um, she came up to me and she said after school, she said, oh, Julia, I hear you've been talking to some of the other mums, you know, and helping them. Julia goes, um, well, yeah. And uh, this mum says, look, Julia, I think I need a session. (laughs) She says, I think I need, in fact, Julia, I think I need lots of sessions. And listen, Julia, she says, I'm willing to pay. And I'm driving along, listen to my wife say this. And I said to to Julia, I said, are you telling me that one of the mums from school is willing to pay you to witness to her? Julia said, yeah. I said, that is fantastic. I said, how much are you going to charge? Because, you know, I think that's got to be more than the minimum wage, wouldn't you say? Anyway, we're out of time. So let me just, um, why don't we stand up together just as I close. Let me just say this as we stand together that um, I'm sure you know that uh, next month the England football team are going to the World Cup and everybody's going to think we're going to win the World Cup and everybody knows we probably won't. Um, But can I just say this? If we do win the World Cup, heaven will not be celebrating. How do I know that? Because Luke 15 verse 7 says this. Luke 15 7 says that the angels celebrate when one lost person comes back to God. So, England lifts the World Cup. Everything goes crazy. Here in the UK, heaven is silent. But when the next person comes in those glass doors at the back, sits in one of these blue seats, and gives their life to Christ, all heaven will erupt. Do you believe it? Thank you, Lord. Father, thank you for your wonderful presence with us. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing truth that the angels celebrate.